This is episode number 20 with Paul Hanley. I specialize in a very specific type of security. Subconscious security. You're talking about dreams. We create the world of the dream. We bring the subject into that dream. And they fill it with their secrets. It's called Inception. Hello everyone and welcome to Cerebral Mind Control. My name is Hadlin. I am a hypnotist, magician, mentalist, and speaker. Every week I will bring to you a driven, focused artist or entrepreneur and pick their brains on how they have learned to control their minds for success. Thank you so much for tuning in. Here we go. Welcome back to the Cerebral Mind Control Podcast. This episode has been brought to you by Hadlin Entertainment, Canada's one-stop shop for premium corporate quality entertainment services. On this episode, we speak with Paul Hanley, an award-winning author. He has written four books with the fifth on its way. We talk about the importance of anticipating the future, the culture of illusion, importance of relationships with others and with ourselves, how we are this consumer being, and why we should reshape our society around spiritual values rather than material values. Ladies and gentlemen, this is an amazing episode. You're going to definitely enjoy learning and listening from Paul Hanley. Now, without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, this is Paul Hanley. Paul Hanley. Hey, hey. thank you so much for coming out here today. Yeah, it's great to be here, finally. Eh? Definitely. Yeah, we met at TEDx Saskatoon in October, and since then... We've been trying to make this work and actually not trying. There's a, a podcast recently I did. We've been doing our best yes, to get together. Doing our best. Yes, because there is no try. Yeah. And we're finally here together and we're going to have a conversation. But you are an author of four books and you've written over 1,500 articles. Your most recent book, 11 billion, or 11, mm-hmm. it's about. At the century's end, there's, there'll be about 11 billion people and how that's going to change the world. Let's talk about that to start off here. Well, as you say, I've been, I've been writing on environmental issues for a long time. Like I've done this column for the Star Phoenix in Saskatoon for 26 years. Wow. So I've covered a lot of, to- you know, almost every topic you can come up with that has to do with environmental issues. And the thing that kind of stood out for me was this idea that, that, uh, the world's population is still rising quite dramatically. And I saw some statistics from the United Nations that said the population is going up to about 11 billion by the end of this century. So that's about 50% more people than there already are. Yeah. But all the evidence is indicating that our society as it presently sits is unsustainable. So what, what about if you add, even on top of that, you add another 50% more people with all their stuff, you know, yeah. all the emissions and everything that we we produce, all the impacts of the human ecological footprint. And I just realized this, this can't work, you know, so we're going to have to make some major changes in our society to make that work. Right. So, a lot, I mean, a lot of people are very pessimistic about the future. I'm not because I kind of believe people can change, but we can change our culture. And so... That's kind of where I take off from the, it's both kind of looking at, at the, uh, you know, all these difficulties that I mentioned in terms of environmental impacts, and then what can we do to make a difference? How can we transform ourselves as individuals, as our, our institutions and our communities to make the world work with that many people? Right. That's very, really, really interesting and very, very good that you're doing this sort of work. So how, that's how you came up with the idea essentially is through your articles and just making that realization. Mm -hmm. When did you start writing this book? Well, what is this? 2015, 2016, 2016, uh, it's about, I don't know, somewhere around 2014, I guess. I mean, in a sense, it's kind of like an, an accumulation of ideas I've had over a long period of time. Right. But I started, it took me about two years to do it. Okay. And one of those years was fairly intensive. 
Okay. The first year I was kind of putting everything together and assembling things. And then the, the second year I, I worked fairly solid, just writing and rewriting and so on. Okay. Yeah. Now I'm actually, I'm very interested about that process in that year when you're writing and rewriting, do you have a, a structure you follow? Do you start with chapter one or do you just like, I, I've, I'm sorry, forgive my ignorance on this. Yeah. Well, so. I think I kind of try to do that, but then I end up kind of writing them all yeah. maybe at the same time. Okay. And then, and you know, or I have, let's say six or seven ideas that I really want to develop that, into chapters. Mm-hmm. And so I'll start working at the beginning and then start kind of, building up all of them at the same okay. time. And then maybe at a certain point, I realize I have to address a couple of maybe two or three other issues that are, there's gaps. Okay. So then I added some more, some more chapters and they kind of kind of round out the whole, the whole argument and the whole picture of the book. Right. Okay. Now for you, the different chapters that uh, unfortunately I haven't read the book yet. I will though. For your different chapters and the different, I guess, highlights that you're talking about, can you take us through a, a brief overview? Yeah, I, I kind of start out talking a lot about about the food and agriculture system and, and how uh, our society has developed in, in, in such a way that it becomes very unsustainable on several levels. So, you know, I, I think food is really important because it's really the real basics, you know, yeah. getting down to it. Like you could get by with almost anything other than food and water. But we've created a system that that this essential food and agriculture system is uh, both quite unhealthy. Like a lot of the stuff that we eat just really isn't good for us and creates this kind of cascade of problems like fast food and yeah fast food and a lot of processed food that is really isn't that good for us okay and so we've created this food system that makes us unhealthy which then we have to fix through our healthcare system and the healthcare system in in canada and, and even more so in the states is this massive expenditure and i know there's there's evidence that shows that if we keep going as we are, the growth of the health, of uh, the healthcare industry, which is really an illness care in- industry, is going to overwhelm all of our spending. Like it would be all of our public spending would go just into protecting our health. Just wow. if you just sort of map out the growth curve. Yeah. And so there's a real problem there. At the same time, that food system is often really hard on the, on the natural environment as well. So we've created this, you know, our, it's our basic support, mm-hmm. food and agriculture, but it's unsustainable and it's also very unhealthy. And, and uh, at the same time, it leaves a significant percentage of the population, if you go to the, the global level, hungry. So it's not even effective in many cases. And it's, it's addicted to the use of oil to, to run the machinery, to produce the the fertilizers to produce the pesticides and so on. So it's unsustainable in that way too. Right. So I kind of start out looking at that and where that's going. And then there's a whole section of the book at one point where I go into agriculture and how we need to change the system. And I focus mostly on the area of, of small farmers in, in uh, the low income countries, because almost all of these new people I talk about, this additional 4 billion people that are coming, almost all of them will be in these low-income countries. It's places like Canada, the United States, uh, Japan, uh, and Europe are kind of at zero population growth. Oh, really? Except okay. for immigration. So um, countries like India and you know Philippines, Indonesia, all these places, they still have a rising population. And a critical one is Africa, where the population is likely to double. Really? Uh, So there's a, in those countries, most of the food is actually produced by very small farmers who are farming on like one hectare or two hectares. And uh, the system is often not all that productive. 
but most of the new people are going to be there. So I think the way to really solve the hunger problem in the world and produce enough food for 11 billion is to really kind of support those small farmers to be more productive and more sustainable. So there's a whole section on, on that and how to do that. Very cool. Yeah. That's and, interesting. Uh, yeah, Great. I think it's really interesting because there's, the interesting thing about it is that um, those farmers, which produce, they produce about 50 to 60% of the food in the world, uh, and they control about 50 to 60% of the land, they actually, uh, if they could increase their soil organic matter even slightly, it would actually address the whole climate problem. Because what you're doing by increasing soil organic matter is, is putting carbon from the atmosphere in, back into the soil and storing it in the soil. So uh, there's a whole scenario there where by supporting the small farmer to become more productive, to have a better life. And by the way, most, most of the really poor people in the world are those small farmers. So you could solve the poverty problem and you could solve the climate problem by helping that segment of society. So I put a lot of emphasis on that. Yeah. But there's also a whole um, discussion about, about culture and how we've created this kind of culture of illusion and uh, where we think that we're doing one thing, but we're actually doing another thing. Okay. So we think we're creating this culture that's making people uh, fulfilled and happy and so on. But in fact, that doesn't seem to be the case. You know, like there's a tremendous number of addictions and so on in societies like ours. And pretty well throughout the world, there's this massive amount of spending on alcohol and drugs and so on that people use to kind of cope with the way we live. And that triggers a whole other set of expenditures in terms of, of like, let's look at crime, for example. Mm -hmm. Like the vast majority of crimes involve the use of alcohol and drugs or are about those things. Yeah, related for sure. And so there's a whole legal system uh, that's dealing with that. There's the prison systems. So there's this, in addition to all this expenditures, which is in the trillions of dollars on, on addicting substances, there's many more trillions on dealing with addicting substances and how it affects people. So that's why I say like our, you know, in a culture that's really driven in, in a number of different ways by addictions, not just addicting substances, but I think our addictions to, to energy, uh, our addictions to material goods. Right. We're kind of driven by this kind of, compulsion to have more and more and more and more stuff like the commercialism under, of the commercialism and it's under this illusion that we're this makes us happy but happiness research shows that's not the case you know i mean they say if you're if you're very poor and you increase your income up to a certain level it does increase your happiness but at a certain point it makes no difference no matter how much more money you have but we have this idea that oh we get more stuff and the will be happier. So I think reorienting ourselves towards really kind of an understanding of what brings happiness. And most research shows that happiness really comes from relationships with with others and, right. and with ourselves, our, our our relationship in our with our inner life and what's going on in our inner world, uh, our, our spiritual life, our emotional life, our intellectual life, and our relationships with people. So I'm talking about kind of reshaping our society around those kind of more spiritual values rather than the material values and how that will make it more possible to support way more people on the planet. Right. You know, there's got to be some sort of mental shift that us as a society have to make in order to make that happen. Mm -hmm. How do you feel that would come to be? Well, um, yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right. There's got to be this kind of transformative thing happening at the level of the individual, mm -hmm. but also at the level of communities. And we have to kind of wake up to our reality. And sometimes I, I think of, I'm a real fan of that movie, The Matrix. You know? Yeah. And uh, the guy finds out he's kind of living in this tank 
being kind of all the stuff fed into him and, and he's actually a source of energy for the system. And sometimes I, I see that as kind of analogous to our situation, not quite as dramatically. Yeah, no, but, I, I never you know, thought of it that way. That's Yeah, we're we're kind of just this this consumer being, you mm-hmm. know. And uh the transformation would be kind of letting go of a lot of that stuff. I mean, obviously you need material supports in your life to stay alive. But to refocus ourselves, start putting our attention on things which are much more profound and give us more sense of meaning in our life and more sense of purpose and satisfaction on a deeper level. Uh, How do you do that? Well, I think people need to be trained. Uh, our, our, Our society now kind of trains us in one direction, which is training to be to be consumers and to right. be kind of cogs in, a, in the industrial machinery in a sense. But I think we need another form of training which trains us in kind of understanding who we are, understanding our values, what, what how important values are, how to develop virtues, virtuous behavior, like mm-hmm. things like being trustworthy, being serving, sure. serving to others and so on. And I think you actually need to train people on how to do that. It doesn't just come automatically. Yeah. So in my book, I talk a, about a, a something called the Ruhi Training Institute, which is actually happening in the world all over the place. And people are trying to use this thing to figure out how do you, how do you actually train the world? Yeah. To think that way. Um, to to find out how they can they can. Uh, develop themselves uh, materially and spiritually and become be, be of service to other people, create a much more cooperative, loving world. And then a world like that would be more environmentally sustainable, you know, because you're, you take away the, all the compulsion to have more and more and more stuff, which is what causes us to use all this energy and so on to produce it. So, mm-hmm. so kind of like a, a negative spiral. Yeah. Uh, yeah. A loop of sorts. Yeah, exactly. This training institution, what's it called again? It's called the Aruhi Institute. Aruhi. That's, okay. that's the way it's been called. And it, and it does, it was started in rural Columbia back in the seventies and people kind of were trying to figure out how to bring about this type of change. And they were, you know, it was, they weren't really being that effective. So they kind of really started thinking it through and developing a, a kind of a training, uh, training uh, modules and so on to see what would work. And, and then they kind of tested it. You know, there'd be this process of action and reflection. Okay. Do something and then, okay, what did that do? What did that accomplish? And then you revise and so on. So they worked on that for about 20 years and then they started to kind of spread it around, around the world. And, uh, so people in, you know, thousands of locations are trying this out in some places. It's really, it's really been where it's been going on for quite a long time. People have been working in a community with this approach for 15 years or something. It actually starts to make some profound changes in culture. In other places, like here in Saskatoon, some people are trying to do this too. Okay. And the progress is way slower as we try and figure it out. Right. The places where it seems to be most effective have mostly been low-income countries like villages and so on. People are more, seem to be more open to change. Yeah, in the areas that most need it too. Most need it. And I... in a way, but I think in a way, uh, it's the wealthy countries that are the biggest part of the problem in terms of environmental sustainability. We're right. the ones who are using most of the energy and using most of the resources and so on. So the way we need to change is to become less and less materialistic. Now, people in poorer areas, they maybe need to have more, more material means, you know, so... Kind of a balance is needed. Balance is needed, and we're way too far to one side, and they're a little too far to the other side. Right. So, but I think the thing is, we, you know, you don't want a situation where, where 
of the poor become rich <laughs> because then it's just a different kind of a problem. Right. You know, the impacts of the, the environmental impacts or they say the ecological footprint of that kind of wealthy lifestyle, middle class, wealthy lifestyle is, is uh, really hard on the natural environment. So the ideal would be for the wealthy to kind of decrease their wealth somewhat and the poor to go up a little bit and okay. find the place in the middle, a sweet spot. Yeah. I see that being pretty hard to convince some, <laughs> maybe not convince, but to make a shift in the minds of the wealthy people to be able to do that. I know there are a lot of wealthy people out there that give back and mm -hmm. are very are philanthropists. Yep. And yeah, definitely need more of those people. Yeah, that's that's part of it. But the other thing I talk about in my book is is, you know, this kind of uh this this cascading kind of crises that are happening in the world and uh moving towards a kind of a collapse of the social order. And uh I see the social and ecological kind of underpinnings of society kind of failing. And I don't think that'll lead to, you know, uh, to the destruction of civilization, but it, it's transformation. And this happens over and over again throughout history where societies kind of rise and, and they collapse and yeah. then a new one comes up. And so I think part of the change process will be the, uh, Things like, like, um, look, look what's happening in, in China right now. Let's say if you go to Beijing, the air quality is so bad, it's just making people sick. And people are, are turning it into a commercial thing where they're actually selling air. <laughs> selling Canadian air, yeah. yeah. So it's, it's like uh, uh, kind of the, the negative outcomes of that kind of uh, way of life really kind of force people to make some changes. Now, China is actually becoming one of the world's leader in renewable energies, solar power, wind power, and so on. So there, there's, um, you know, like those negative outcomes bring about positive yeah. positive change because you just have to change. Of course. So I see a lot of that is going to happen. And, um, Things like you know running out of water or, or the opposite, flooding and so on, sea level rise, all these things that are happening, will will uh, cause kind of such heavy problems that people will really have to change. Can't wait to read your book. It's going to be uh, it's going to be really good. I can already tell. Can yeah. You... Well, there's a lot in there. Yeah. <laughs> how many pages? Uh, how many pages? I think it's about three fifty. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it's not bad. Four hundred. Yeah. yeah. So it's it's got a lot of content. There's a lot. Like people often comment on how much uh, research must have been involved because there's yeah. like a lot of. I really like statistics and stuff. Yeah. So I really try and back everything up with 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 uh, real life data. With data and and, and references and okay. Yeah. Very good. Very mm -hmm. good. You know, one big thing is like in a, in a book, like if you're writing an article, it's very easy to keep your train of thought, but in a a book length when it's 400 pages long, uh, making sure you don't say things two or three times and yeah. you're not repeating, you know, and keeping your sequence and making sure that the thing kind of flows is quite important. Definitely. So sometimes I'd have to like switch a chapter, chapter five becomes chapter four and then okay. reorder things. And, right. and then that brings about different changes. Now, I'm actually in the process of writing a book. Really? I'm writing a book about hypnosis and oh. I'll tell you after this podcast what my other one is is on the back of my mind that I, mm -hmm. I haven't started that one yet. But yeah, so currently I'm having a hard time trying to organize my thoughts. I'm in right now, every time I think about something, you know, if I want to start writing, I just write down what comes to mind. So right now it's very unorganized. What would you say is the best way to start to organize what I have into uh, chapters? Yeah. Well, that's, 
that's tricky that's the i guess the secret of doing these things yeah. and people have to come up with some kind of system to do it yeah so i guess um categorizing the ideas somehow is, is essential okay so um i mean a, a chapter <clears throat> a chapter gives you a theme mm -hmm. but then if you can divide your chapter up like a lot of people could divide it up into little sections you know so that that helps too okay but if you could do I don't know if I ever really did this, but do a real, really detailed outline. Because sometimes I find that, that you don't really know what you think till you write it. You know what I mean? Like okay. you, you kind of have a general idea, but as you're writing it, you're trying to articulate the argument and back it up with factual information. You maybe actually change a little bit how you think and, and refine how you think. So it's actually the, the act of writing really uh, creates your your Gets thinking your mind <laughs> you know right. yeah okay. so i don't know I, I think probably people have lots of different ways of doing that and my my approach is a bit a bit uh chaotic i think okay. <laughs> and there's just all kinds of stuff coming from all over the place and right. as i look something up it leads me onto the onto, onto another the, another path. thing mm -hmm. yeah you're going down the garden path and down the rabbit hole and stuff, looking for information. But that can be really rich because you find all kinds of great stuff. But then it becomes confusing too. Like I just got too much data. There's this data deluge and right. what am I going to do with it all? So okay, that's the trick. That's what writing is, is figuring out how to do that. Right. Okay. Well, I guess that's, that's what I, that's my task right now. Now, since this is your fourth book, you know, it's coming natural to you. You, do you have a, a fifth book? Yeah, I'm writing my next book uh, right now. Okay, and uh, it's 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 going okay. I mean, I'm I'm trying to um, like in my last book, like I'm I'm quite a a spiritually oriented person, but I know there's a lot of people who really are turned off by that. Mm -hmm. So I've been trying to write stuff in a kind of a, a different kind of a language you know so it doesn't immediately turn people off uh and i tried to do that in this in this book 11 to talk about some of those you know i mentioned i think we need a kind of a spiritual transformation right. a value transformation but a lot of people are very find that a bit too weird so i try to kind of put it in a framework that more people can find it uh useful a useful way of looking at things so that's what I'm trying to do with this other book. I'm trying to go deeper into that, but uh, without using the typical kind of lingo of yeah. religious or spiritual right. people. Okay. So it's kind of it's kind of Sounds a uh, it's kind of a difficult thing to do in a way because I don't want to just use the the kind of pat terminology and stuff that people use, but I, I think that that sometimes people's opposition to spirituality and religion isn't really based on the core ideas. It's based on how certain people have behaved, like religious like leaders extremists. And, and extremists and yeah. so on. And really the core ideas, I think, are probably fairly attractive to almost anybody. I mean, they're really about things like virtuous behavior like being honest, being trustworthy, being just, and being kind and compassionate, and so on. Right. Uh, these things, I don't think anybody really... Some really important core values. They're core values that I think everybody kind of believes in. So yeah. if, if you can kind of put things more in those terms, uh, I think that's more... You don't get that immediately, like, turning off just because it's, oh, my God, somebody's talking about religion or whatever. Yeah. Uh, so that's kind of one of my, one of the tasks I set for myself is how to, how to kind of uh, have this conversation, an elevated conversation with people through through a book, without immediately kind of creating a reaction. That's right, keeping them open minded. Keeping yeah yeah, and yeah, so that's one of the goals I've set for myself. So the book is kind of along the same lines as what I've been doing, but it kind of just goes deeper and deeper into the issues and, and kind of the, the process of transformation. And, and I, I talk a lot about kind of catastrophe 
which seems to be happening more and more. I mean, literally it is. And, and there's uh, one, one interesting thing is that this, there's a, uh, the insurance industry has really been tracking climate change and, and environmental issues and catastrophes and so on for a number of decades. And so they've been, they're one of the first industries to really recognize the, the depth of the problem with climate change. And so they've been tracking it because they actually have to pay for Right, of course. So there's these big, big companies that are reinsurance companies that insure insurance companies. So they've been really tracking this stuff. And so you can really look at their data. And the number of, of big natural catastrophes have risen from something like, let's say, maybe 300 a year to about 1,000 a year now. Okay. Where this, you know, a lot of them are floods and, and, and weather events and so on, storm surges and, you know, like the numbers increasing and they're kind of really creating chaos and a lot of environmental migrants. And, and uh, so there's like something like 60 million people. I just saw the statistics, one in a hundred and 22 people in the world is a is a is a environmental or political migrant like a refugee okay so it's like it's starting to be huge numbers and we've yeah. seen in the last year what the impact is of people like trying to get into europe and the social upheaval that's that's causing and uh, i think we're going to see more and more of that so places like the the safe places like canada and so on yeah. i mean where all these, you know, people are, are having these social and ecological upheavals all over the world, they're, they're going to be moving. So that's a, a big, big issue. And we have a lot of space. We've got a lot of space and, uh, and stability and, and, uh, and a fair bit of wealth and so on. So I, I don't know. I just see the world really kind of mixing it up in the next few decades and, and there being a lot of change. Uh, sea level rise is a huge one. People don't realize how big the impact already is, and there's there's something like a billion people live within within uh, a few meters of the sea level of sea level. So if it goes up slightly, uh, storm surges can really knock out these these highly populated coastal areas. So problems like that we're already seeing in like you know Manhattan. Uh, New Orleans, mm -hmm. uh, other places. Uh, Bangladesh is dramatically affected. Uh, there's a lot of people living in river valleys and so on that are, are, are really at risk. So I see a lot of catastrophe happening, and I see that as a, a as a kind of a forcing agent for change. So yeah. that now, my book sort of goes into a lot of that stuff. Hopefully, my book. hopefully we can start to make the changes before it happens. Well, that Instead would be ideal. Reacting, right? Unfortunately, people often kind of, they, they don't do it until they, until they have until to. They have to. <laughs> I mean, we're all kind of like that, aren't we? Yeah. But I think that's part of maybe the change process too, is learning not to be like that. Yeah, learning okay. to be in someone that makes an the action. Future, yeah. yeah. This, this is likely to happen. I'm going to do something about it. Right. Exactly. So we have to learn to think like that collectively as well as individually. Now, I just have a question about, you know, you said the there's a statistic about the number of catastrophes around the world is increasing. Mm -hmm. Is that because maybe more of them are being reported now? Or is that... They actually track that too. Okay. No. Uh, so part, that's part of it, but it only represents like, you know, 10 or 15% is the improved reporting of what's going on. And uh, the interesting thing about these things is like the, the events like earthquakes and so on, which are not man-made, they're not going up. It's all, it's almost all what they call hydrological, meteorological events, all affected by, influenced by climate, climate change are the ones that are going up. Right. So, and they're about 80% of these these natural disasters. So, yeah. So that's being it. in Saskatoon, but we're pretty safe. <laughs> we're, we're pretty good. I, I mean, one of the one of the things that that causes this is the intensification of population. So, uh, let's say the the damage 
from an event is higher because there's a lot more people in a place than there used to be. Right. You know? Exactly. So that's that's part of it too. And it hits more hits more wallets that way. It does. And then, yeah. And we're talking about, you know, uh events that are causing damage up to a hundred billion dollars, single events. You know, but many, you know, they call them great disasters. And there's many, many more billion dollar events. And some parts of the world people are heavily insured and other parts they aren't. So this this places like Canada, most of our these problems were covered by insurance, but many places they don't have insurance to cover them. And insurance companies are starting to stop insuring a lot of things too. Like, you know, let's say there's a place where the storm surges are likely to happen. Well, we won't insure you to live there. Right. <laughs> so what that's do you do? A... Whatever you do, if you're in a, you have a whole city that's sitting on the edge of a, of a bay or something and, yeah. uh, and nobody can get insurance anymore. It's hard to move a city. What do you do? Yeah. You, know, you build then people are starting to like build these big walls around cities and stuff. Oh, really? They're yeah, okay. like Manhattan's building is is working on building a big wall, a uh, seawall. Interesting. Yeah. How high is this wall? I I don't. I'm not sure. Yeah. yeah. It would have to be pretty pretty high. I'd have to think to be able to be safe from a, a giant wave. Or yeah, something, right? and that's yeah. That's the question: is how how big is it going to be? <laughs> <laughs> It's going to be then one of the wonders of the world, probably. Yeah. All right. So, Paul, I have a, some questions that I ask every guest on the show. Right. And we'll start with uh, one that I feel like you would have a really good answer for, <laughs> just speaking with you already. And that is, what do you feel is the meaning of life? What do I feel is the meaning of life? Well, um... I think there's a few parts to it. I think everybody needs to do their part to kind of create an ever-advancing civilization. But that civilization is there to kind of create a uh, an environment in which we can develop as individuals, develop our potential, our, our spiritual potential. That's, that's the way I see it. So it's kind of a com combination of of developing ourself as much as we can, uh, and then contributing to this to the social uh, social situation, so that everybody has an opportunity to develop. Right. Uh, I don't know if that's. I like it. That's that, pretty good. That's really gets it there. Or yeah, that? I know it's a tough question. It's very uh, very open and. I, I like it. I'm, yeah, I mean, it's sort of like the concept of like enlightenment. You know, I, it's like we, we live to achieve enlightenment. I think an enlightenment is uh, is uh, it's kind of a personal thing, but it's also a societal thing. Like, what's the point of achieving it by yourself in a way? Like, yeah, you know, it's like exactly. And what what is it? I don't know. I I, I think it's kind of becoming kind of fully aware of. Of reality, what's, very powerful. What's our reality, and you know exactly. And then, and then, you know, like uh, the Buddha. I'm not a Buddhist, but I, I, what I understand about Buddhism is that the Buddha achieved enlightenment, and and then kind of uh, revoked it, so he could come back into the world and help others to become enlightened. You know, like he could have kind of just gone into a trance state and, yeah. uh, of enlightenment by himself forever, but he said, no, I'll give that up so I could help other other creatures achieve enlightenment. So I kind of think that's our, our model. It's like we're, we're trying to become as enlightened as we can as individuals, but, but then it's all about helping others and serving others and giving to others. Uh, and helping others achieve that as well. Yeah, like there's our family, there's our friends, but there's our communities. So. so how do you affect that sort of shift on a larger level? That's the question, I think. Yeah. It's, well, that's why I've talked about 
with this uh, this training institute, which I think is really important, and it works with kids, with youth and adults, and you know you really kind of go into uses study materials, and you're really trying to study uh, what is reality, basically, and and have deep conversations about it, um, and just kind of work on making it happen. So it's it's an action reflection model. So in this institute, you you study things, but you do things right away. Like for example, uh, one of the things you try to do is get into conversations like we're having today with people, you know, because often what we do is very superficial in our day-to-day lives. But what if we really started talking about in a deep way about our condition uh, and where we want to go with our life, what's life about, what's the meaning of life, as you, you put it. And so that just something simple like that, which anybody can do, really helps this process. Of, of becoming enlightened and, and, and working with others to become enlightened together. So that's uh, that's one thing. Visiting each other, like people just visiting each other in their homes and building bonds of friendship. You know, the, I mean, I think there's a lot of really simple things we can do, but you have to have a, some kind of motivation and build some capacity to do these things. To, right. And, you know, acquire virtues and practice them but but you know it's like little steps mm-hmm. and i don't know i i kind of think that that probably everybody really wants to do that yeah it's sometimes Somewhere not the societal norm too yeah and that's probably where some of the problems arise too because mm-hmm. you know something comes up and they really would like to to do that sort of thing but there's a lot of people that think oh that's crazy talk yeah when maybe Maybe crazy is the other way around. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think so. With your talk on, or with your book on spirituality and all your knowledge that you have, what have you learned so far that has allowed you to control your mind and your thoughts and to be able to, to focus? What have you learned that helps you in that way? Mm. Well, um, every day I try to I pray and, and and kind of contemplate uh, deep things, you know, yeah. okay. deep thoughts. And uh, like I read from uh, uh, spiritual writings, read. okay, it sort of helps me to refocus. But another thing I do is I try to get out into the country every day. I've got two dogs, and I go for a walk every day in the in the bush and by the river and uh i find like that connection with nature is really important as well so there's those two things i think being engaged in community and uh, a community of people that kind of have similar interests and and to kind of spread that kind of uh sentiment okay it kind of all all kind of helps to keep me focused on positive things i I hope. Yeah. <laughs> now, when you're, for instance, when you're writing, how do you keep focused on a, a topic or how do you push through a, a writer's block, so to speak? Hmm. Well, I don't know. I think over time, like as like a professional writer, you, you kind of develop a certain discipline. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I think it's true. Sometimes I, you know, I have a lot of ideas that really flow and sometimes less, but because of the discipline, like I can, okay, I can say, attach myself to some topic and I'll just do the research and and make it happen. Um, So um, probably I, I don't really experience writer's block, but I probably the quality changes a lot, you know, like sometimes I feel inspired and sometimes I don't feel inspired, but okay. I can still write uninspired. That's really cool. But uh, you... the inspired stuff, like it sort of comes alive for me and then I become excited about it myself. And the, I I don't know if that comes through to readers or not. I am assuming it does. But uh, like, you know, like other professions, I guess 
you, that's what you do. You just, you can do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And over time you've developed that sort of, you've created the neural connections to yeah. make it happen. Yeah. And, for you. and, and nonfiction writing is maybe different than fiction. Like maybe you can always write a, you know, give me a topic and I, that kind of journalism, you can, I can, I can write about it, <laughs> you know, yeah. whereas if, if you said, okay, write, write a poem right now, mm-hmm. I might not be able to do that. Okay. Or, or a short story or, an, you know, but I, cause nonfiction, there's data, you can find it and you can assemble it. And it's like, it's just like sort of working out a puzzle in a way. Right. And I feel like you're probably really good with puzzles. Well, not kind the other kinds yeah. no okay <laughs> not, no <laughs> well you know with your your book 11 i feel that was a puzzle you're creating your it is puzzle of fixing and giving us a solution for a future problem yeah that and the, the writing process itself is kind of like a puzzle yeah okay, okay how do you how do you put all this stuff together and right. you know that's it's especially when it gets long it's it gets more and more complicated Mm -hmm. i mean maybe at least the way i do it maybe other people are more and this might be a a thing that has to do with the way we write now the technologies because i mean when i started writing i was on on a typewriter and you know you didn't want to make too many mistakes yeah and now like i might revise a hundred times uh you know, and everything's moving all over the place and getting, but the way you did it before is you kind of had to think things out more and, and get it. So, so you didn't have to retype hundreds of times right. <laughs> or, I mean, you'd maybe do it two or three times, you know, mm-hmm. but now you can literally do it endlessly. It's so easy to, so to, easy to, to, to change things. But I think that actually changes how we write, how we think and so on. Right. Because... That's what I'm told anyway. Because now you, you have that in the back of your mind, and you know that you don't have to get it to that point anymore. Yeah. So there's good things about it and bad things. I, I think the old way, like people used to maybe really think things through, and then with their pen, they'd write the thing out, you know, right. and it would flow out. So there's just there's two styles of doing things, and, mm-hmm. and there's good things about each, I guess. What are your other three books? Uh, well, the first one I did was called Earth Care, which was about ecological agriculture in Saskatchewan. It was kind of like a manual. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I mean, I'm a writer. I'm not like a farmer or a, or a agriculture expert. So I was like pulling together all this information from other people. And that one I, I co-wrote with somebody else. I was the editor and I wrote big parts of it. But we just kind of found all the research we could on non-chemical farming methods in Saskatchewan. That came out in 1980. And um, then I did another one on agriculture. It was called The Spirit of Agriculture. And it was on kind of the relationship between agriculture and, and religion, which sounds kind of weird. But they're actually, it really, they really developed together going back into the, in, into history you know, back 10,000 years or so. And uh, <clears throat> so that one was a compilation. I wrote that with a bunch of people. There were 13 writers, and I wrote a couple of the chapters. I was the editor. That was kind of interesting because that, that came out, you know, in 2006, and uh, there was writers from all over the world. We did the whole thing through, through the inter- you know, writing together through the Internet. And, okay. And... Uh, and that was it was kind of neat. That is really cool because there's yeah. people from you know Russia and Africa and Asia yeah. and so on. Uh, and then I did a book for the Miwasan Valley Authority, uh, the, the history of the 25 year history of the Miwasan Valley Authority. Uh, so that was my third one, and now now this one eleven. Very cool. Yeah. And you're about to have the your fifth book under your belt right away. And well, I don't know. I think it's. The pace I'm going, I think it's probably going to take two years to write it. Yeah, well, I don't know. I feel I'd like, like to that's write it still faster pretty quick. Than that. I'd like to do it in a year, but really, I don't think I can. Yeah, there's a a lot 
that goes into a book from pre-planning to the final stages. Yeah, and, really, really a lot. And, and then there's the publishing process, yeah. which is a whole other thing. How did you find publishers to publish your book? I self-published this book. There's companies now that publish for you, so you pay them to publish. And uh, lots more and more writers are doing that these days because there's one simple reason, money. Uh, so with a regular publisher, you, you get a royalty that's about 10% on your sales. But with a self-published book, you can get some, some depends how you sell it, but sometimes I'm getting like 75%. And so what I found when I published through a regular publisher, I had to basically do all the work myself marketing it anyway. Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, okay. they basically kind of list it in their catalog and make people oh. aware it exists. And that was about it. And it's a bit like maybe the music industry, like they put most of their effort into marketing the famous musicians, the same with the right. Like if you're Margaret Atwood, the publisher does all the work for you and they know they're going to sell a million copies. And if it's Paul Hanley, it's like, who's he? So they, they might publish it, but they don't really do that much for you. So I figure, well, I'm going to have to do all the work myself anyway. I might as well make whatever money I can out right. of the, out of the thing. So I'm going to self publish this and see if that works. And so far it's, it's been good. I think, um, uh, yeah, and, you know, I had to do a lot of my own marketing, but I did. I got two uh, two awards for the book, which helps. And, Congratulations! Yeah, That's awesome. You. And uh, I think it's a pretty good model for a lot of people to go self publishing. Yeah. The problem with it is you. It's very hard to get reviews and so on because there's still kind of a prejudice against it. Because they they say, well, guy couldn't get a, anybody to publish his book, so he did it himself. It mustn't be very good. But then you you know you win awards and so on and and get positive reviews from individuals, but most newspapers and that won't review it. So there's there's a downside to it as well. Right, and I I have a question about that, but I just wanted to say that you know I feel that's the way that most of the world is heading mm -hmm. now, because you know self publishing your own book, for instance, my uncle and his band. They produce their own albums mm -hmm. and they do all the work for their own tours and they tour Canada all on their yeah. own. And it's all, I feel that is the way the future really mm -hmm. is getting rid of the, the large corporations, maybe not getting rid. That's a, maybe a bad word to use, but mm -hmm. using, not signing on with them as much mm -hmm. because now with the internet and we're so connected with people that you can really, like when you wrote your book, you can connect with people all around the world and your audience can grow larger now just with one person than it could mm -hmm. before the internet. That's And mm -hmm. I feel, even personally with my own stuff too, I, I never thought about the, the publishing side of the book that mm -hmm. I'm writing, but for tricks that I have invented, mm -hmm. I'm going to be self-publishing those to, to magicians. It's a smaller market, so it's very niche, but yeah, yeah. definitely, definitely self-publishing. I feel like you maybe get more reward out of it too. Self-reward. Well, like it's not about like somebody like me and doing this book isn't about making money. Yeah. You know, it's about the, so, but on the other hand, it's nice to be compensated for your, for your work. You right. Know? And I say like reward, if, but I, I'm not necessarily meaning monetary. I mean, yeah, the, no, the gratification. I understand. Yeah. And, uh, but I, I think that's part of, you know, if you're a musician or an artist or whatever, you, you appreciate getting that compensation because it's sort of a recognition of what you do, you know? So I think it's important, even though that you're not, if you're an, a painter, you're not doing it to make money. Yeah. But you need to make money. You also need to make money. Double-edged sword. Yeah. So, uh, and same with musicians. They're not out there, you know, wow, this is the best way to make money yeah. in the world. It's because exactly. you want to make music. And, uh, so, but I, I think you're right. I think there's the whole publishing industry and all of these kind of media things are all shifting and newspapers are changing and people are finding information in different ways. So, 
sometimes self-publishing is the way. I'm, I don't know. This next one, I'm, I'm still trying to decide which way to go. Right. And I, I noticed you have a, a really powerful quote by the author of The Life of Pi. Mm-hmm. How did you make that connection with, with him? Yeah, yeah. Jan Martel, he's a, he lives in Saskatoon, so he's, a, he's very supportive of local writers. So I just, yeah, I just said, hi, Jan Martel. Yeah. Oh, do you just, want to read my manuscript and, and see what you think? And he, he said, okay. I'm really busy right now, but I'll see what I can do. And he did read it, and uh, and then he gave me one of those great quotes, like everybody in the world should read this book. So, <laughs> yeah, uh, he knows what to say. But uh, very kind of him. And you know, one thing I've found uh, is that reaching out to uh, some very famous people—they're very, very, very giving. You know, and they want to help other people, and it's it's really it's really nice. And then other people, you can't get through their barriers yeah. at all. I know Margaret Atwood posted on her webpage, "Do not send me any requests of any kind to support anything." <laughs> you know, so there's kind of like she probably just gets too much of it. Yeah, but some people are very very giving and very supportive of, of others. Dan Martel's is like that. He you know, made a decision to be in Saskatoon and stay here and and support the community here. So still, there's a lot of people won't even make the effort to ask, and it was it was nothing to you, hey? You just well, oh, he's I I had met him, and, and okay. he you know he mentioned to me that he'd read he reads my newspaper column and that kind okay. of thing. So there's kind of a bit of an opening there, but right. How would you suggest to somebody who doesn't have that sort of opening to to go and try to make, not try, but go to do their best to make an effort and connect with someone that they really want to connect with? Oh, boy. I don't know. Like, some people are just, some people are very open. Like, I mean, it helps if they're kind of like somebody like Jan lives in Saskatoon like they're local to, to where yeah, you are. Yeah, yeah, or they have a specific interest in what you do. Yeah. Well, maybe, you know. Um, but some people are very generous that way, so, you know, 10 people might reject you, but one of them will, right. will, will you know, help, help you out. You know, I think a lot of it is about confidence, just having confidence that you can do something, and, and it's it's hard to have it's hard to get confidence. And I, I don't know that I'm, I'm not a really highly confident person, but sometimes you have to pretend that you're, <laughs> pretend right. that you're something at, to build the capacity to be that thing that you want to be, if that makes any it sense. It does, yeah. You know, so. Fake it like till I, you make I'm, it. Kind yeah, of. I'm kind of, I'm, I'm actually very shy and so on. So like stuff like speaking in public and that was really hard for me, but I fear it. Okay, I'm gonna do this thing. I'm gonna write this book. I gotta promote it, exactly. so I gotta go try and do this. Yeah. And you know, so those that kind of thing was a challenge for me. Uh, and then just the whole idea of self promotion, like uh, you know, like I kind of value humility, but I feel like okay, I gotta get this thing out there somehow. So I gotta, so I've gotta kind of put myself out there. Say this is a good thing, and uh, it's worth people reading and and listening to, and so it kind of goes against exactly. my nature to say that. But uh, like I, I think it, maybe you have to look at the contributions you make as not really being about your ego, but it's just like okay, I'm I'm putting together a bunch of stuff that are that has been generated by thinkers, and and I'm just. Uh, facilitating people thinking about this thing right and uh so yeah. it's okay for me to put myself forward a bit here yeah you're you're doing the work so other so others don't have to in a sense yeah yeah well paul i just want to take some time here just to acknowledge you as i do with all the guests and highlight some of your qualities you're an amazing individual who You've written four books. That's that's huge. 
it's hard for people to even write one book, let alone four. And you're on your going to your fifth book, and that's inspirational in itself. The amount of effort that you put into all of your all of your books and into all of your work, even even here today, I can see all the effort that you're putting into all of your answers, and you're giving us really good and really well thought out information to think about and to learn from. And I really appreciate you taking some time coming out here and sharing your knowledge and allowing me to learn and in turn having the people at home who are listening learn as well. And thank you so much. This is great. I've, I'm having a, a, a great time just <laughs> learning from you. So well, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, that's, that's great. Paul, how can people find you? Well, I do have a website from that's sort of about my book. It's www.11billionpeople.com. Perfect. So if they go there, and I, I kind of do a Facebook thing too, which is, you know, facebook.com slash 11 billion. Okay. So I post quite a bit of stuff on there uh, about these topics. It's right. not like personal stuff. It's all about uh, the same kind of issues that I raise in the, in the book. And, Perfect. Yeah. Yeah, and we'll be able to find all those links in the show notes. This is going to be episode number 20. So they'll be able to find the show notes at hadlin.com slash cmc-20. Okay. Yeah. And they'll have all the information that we spoke about, some of the highlights, as well as uh, links to obviously buy your book, go to your website, which everybody that's listening, you should definitely buy a, this book. And you know what? Buy a couple copies. Exactly. One for I yourself. One and... guy bought bought about 100 copies. Wow. And uh, he's an Australian guy. Yeah. And he, I gave a talk and he got up afterwards and said, I, I, bought, I bought 80 copies and I want 20 more right now. <laughs> oh, that's the kind of guy you like. To... Yep. But, you know, he gave it to people and started this conversation with people. About right. It. Very good. Very good. So buy 100 copies. Yeah. Exactly. And give it out. Give it uh, to your friends, your or family. You can go to the library and get one too. There you have it, guys. That was episode number 20. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Please show your support by hitting that subscribe button, that like button, and even share it with somebody. The show notes for this episode will be found at www.hadlen.com slash cmc-20. All right, guys, thank you so much. We'll see you next week, next Thursday. Until then, be sure to go out there every single day and work as hard as you can towards your goals. Uh -huh.